Are you living a godly life? Well, let's find out today on Changed by Grace. Welcome to Changed by Grace. I'm Pastor Steve Herford. Today we're looking at 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Peter's just finished talking about our spiritual blessings in Christ, and now he turns back to the responsibility that those blessings bring. There are three things that define who we are, how God sees us in Scripture, what we keep ourselves from, and what we maintain on a daily basis. Let's learn more. Well, we have the glorious opportunity to look again at the Word of God, so I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Today we're looking at verses 11 and 12. Peter has just finished talking about the spiritual blessings that we find in Christ. And I remind you back at verse 9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And since we are all of these things, he's now going to exhort them to a certain kind of behavior. Last time we talked about spiritual privilege. Well, we're back to spiritual duty once again. Look at verse 11 as I read it. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Essentially, there are three things that define who we are. The first is how God sees us in Scripture. The second is by what we keep ourselves from. And third is what we maintain on a daily basis before an unbelieving world. And the three things that I'm referring to is how we are addressed, what we abstain from, and what behavior we maintain. Essentially, this is a call to living a godly life. Godly living is the byproduct of our salvation. It's not the means, but it does serve also as the proof. The Bible teaches that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. That's how we're saved. It's by grace through faith, not by works. And so when we talk about sanctification, and sanctification is just one of those big ten-cent words, it basically means being set apart to God. We're talking about living a holy life. Peter keeps going back to this theme, and it's very helpful that he does because it just keeps reminding us of what our responsibility is as a child of God. If you go back into chapter 1, and it says in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And you hear... A verse like that, and you have to ask yourself the question, how does that come into my life? How do I see that in my life? Because many times it's difficult for us to see things that's going on. We tend to see our flesh. We tend to see our sin more than anything. But what about holiness? 
Do we see any of that? Well, in verses 11 and 12, he tells us some things here that that help us to see it. In fact, as we talk about these things being not the means of our salvation, but the byproduct, we would also equally have to say that our obedience to the Word of God is also a byproduct. It is proof that we belong to Him. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. And by this, we know that we are in him. So obedience to the word of God produces that assurance. It produces that security, if you will. But, you know, it doesn't stop there. It's also manifested in our love for one another. In the same book, in chapter 3 and verse 14... The Bible says that we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And so do people see this in your life? I mean, first, the internal desires there for God's word, that you obey his word, but that they also see the external, and that is the love that you have for one another. And I would even say in the context in which we find this written in 1 John, it would be love among believers, but... Unbelievers have to see that as well, don't they? And we're going to talk about that also. But as Peter begins in these two verses, he begins, first of all, with a tender address. Notice what he says here. You find there that word beloved. That word beloved, that adjective, it comes from a Greek word that means to be dear. It's a very affectionate endearing term. It was common to both uh, Old and New Testament. Here Peter is drawing his readers closely to his heart. He's doing it with intelligent, purposeful love. He's doing it with a love that will call forth a corresponding love and a readiness to obey. He uses this term six times in both letters. We find it here in this verse, in 1 Peter 2.11, but we also find it over in 1 Peter 4.12, where he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery deal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And then we find it in his second letter. He says in 2 Peter 3.1, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. We find it also in verse 8, where he says... Beloved, uh, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. He also mentions it in verse 14, and he also mentions it in verse 17. So he uses this very endearing term as he addresses them, but he tends to do this before he gives them the exhortation. That is a very precious term. It's so precious that we find it in Matthew 3.17 coming from the very voice of God as he speaks at the baptism of his own son, the Lord Jesus. It says, Behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was referred to by God as his beloved 
Son. You know what? You and I are referred to in Scripture as beloved by God. What a wonderful term. Especially with what he's about to talk about right here because he's going to hit us in an area that we all have to deal with. No one is exempt from verses 11 and 12 at all. But let me encourage you by a couple other passages before we look at this. And one's in 1 Thessalonians 1.4. It says, knowing, beloved, or knowing brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. And notice that, beloved by God. And the context here of the Thessalonians, that they were the elect of God, they were the children of God. They manifested the work of God, the labor of love, the patience of hope, the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They manifested these things in their life which showed that they really were the children of God. As I said earlier with the passage in 1 John, there was the external proof that they belonged to God, and that was by obedience. And here they had external proof as well. When Paul was writing to the Romans... In one seven, he says to all who are beloved of God, and how many were of them in Rome that were Christians? We have no way to know, but all of them he referred to as beloved of God. He called them saints. And I know in past ages the term saints has gotten a bad rep because we tend to associate it with the Catholic Church. We tend to associate it with stained glass windows that have pictures of, quote, saints on them. And all a saint is, it comes from that Greek word hagios, which means holy. It goes right back to what we talked about being set apart to God. That's what it means to be a saint, is to be one who is set apart to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you look at this idea of of this endearing term that he uses, and it seems to be very similar to what Paul does. It's as if to say, to soften the appeal. He says there, I urge you. You might have beseech in your translation. That word is parakleo. You ever heard the word paraclete? Paraclete is the Holy Spirit. Parakleo comes from a verb that means to come alongside. And there's various ways that you can do that. You can do it by employing somebody. You can do it by urging them, to exhort them, to encourage them to beseech them, or even appeal to them. And I kind of lean to the word appeal because of what he has already stated up to this point. He's, he's told them who they are in Christ, and based upon that, I appeal to you. Well, before he appeals to them, look what else he says about them. He refers to them as aliens. Yes, we are strange people. Aliens, people believe in UFOs. I believe in UFOs. I got your attention, didn't I? Angels are unidentified flying objects, wouldn't you say? This is the word paraoikos. literally means alongside the house. And the word came to denote any person who lives in a country not his own. And that would therefore make him a foreigner. That term really fits Christians who don't belong to this world system, but they live alongside those who do. Peter already referred to them in chapter 1 and verse 1 as aliens, and we are certainly aliens to this world. 
But you know what? Bless God, we're no longer aliens to God. It says over in Ephesians 2.19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. And I praise God for that, don't you? But he also says that they were also strangers. Peter also used that term. And that term was a synonym for alien. It refers to a visitor who travels through a country, perhaps makes a brief stay there. He also used that term already in chapter 1 and verse 17. The writer of Hebrews reminded the believers in chapter 13 and verse 14, he says, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And so as long as we're in this world... There should be in our lives as Christians a certain detachment, and that should be seen and displayed in our lives. We can't just go along with everything the world does. Because, see, the world wants to mold you into its image. The world wants you to look like them, act like them, talk like them, live like them. But we're not the world anymore. We have been called out of the world. We're in the world, but we've been called out of the world. And we've been called to be separate from the world. And so these things that that Peter talks about here identify that separation. So notice as he continues in verse 11, he gives us that tender address. He identifies them as beloved and aliens and strangers. He urges them, and now we find out what he urges them to. And now we see the content of the appeal. He urges them to abstain from fleshly lust. Abstain from fleshly lust. That word abstain, apekomai, it's used in the middle voice, and it literally means this, to keep oneself from. Keep oneself from fleshly lust, or to keep holding yourself off from. So it's marking a constant need that we have. This is something that we have to do all the time. Sometimes this will occur all throughout the day. Other times it may be a few times in the day, but it's going to go on all the time. This is an internal discipline. And this discipline is only possible with the help of the Holy Spirit. You can't do this yourself. I can't do this myself. It is only by the Spirit of God. And we know that because we read in Galatians 5.22 that the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Major in on that last word, self-control. That is a fruit of the Spirit. Aren't we talking about that? When we're talking about abstaining from fleshly lust, isn't that a call for self-control? Because it's talking about something that's going on inside of you. This is an internal discipline. And the word that he uses here for self-control, it means to hold in of passions and appetites. You have your passions in check. The word group that he uses here, it originally meant mastery or power over oneself or over something. And eventually it came to mean control over oneself, especially one's desires and one's actions. The opposite word means self-indulgence. The opposite of self-control is licentiousness. So it's keeping your passions in check. And a person who doesn't have self-control is actually defenseless and always subject to attack and defeat. 
Now, when you chase this word down in the New Testament, it's used a many number of times. We find James, the Lord's half-brother, using it in Acts 15.20. And when he was using it, he was talking about how that they would respond to the Gentiles that were coming to know Jesus. And he encouraged that the council there at Jerusalem would write a letter urging them to abstain from things that were contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. And then in chapter 15 and verse 29, they did take his advice. They did write the letter. And this is what they said in writing this letter, that the Gentiles should abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. And if you keep yourself free from such things, you will do well. So that was a a call of the early church to these Gentiles coming to know Christ, that here is the mark of separation. But it's not used only there. We find it used over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. And many times people struggle with what is the will of God. Here it is right here, clear, black and white. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. There's that 10-cent word I mentioned a moment ago. Your being holy. That is, and this is what he's talking about with sanctification in this passage, that you abstain, you keep yourself from sexual immorality. Over in chapter 5 and verse 22, he talks about them abstaining from every form of evil. So there are some things that we have to abstain from, and this command to abstain... It signifies that we have the ability by the new life and the indwelling spirit to restrain ourselves from the fleshly lust, regardless of the culture that we live in. Think about Noah in his day and the culture that he lived in right before God destroyed all but eight people. It was really bad. We look at our culture and we say things are bad and things are going to get worse than they are now. Can you even imagine that? But again, the key is the Holy Spirit. We can't divorce ourselves from that understanding. It's only by His power that we can overcome the flesh. When we walk by the means of the Spirit, we will not give in to the flesh. That's very clear. When you look at this verse in Galatians 5.16, what does it say here? It talks about walking. And what is walking? One step at a time. And how are we to walk in our Christian life? With the Spirit. And when we do this, we will not carry out the desire of the flesh. In fact, it's by the Spirit that we actually kill sin. We can't do it on our own. Romans 8.13 says that if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How are we doing this? By the Spirit. Now, let me back up a little bit. We talk about here abstaining from fleshly lusts. And the idea here of lust is that Greek word epithumia. Epithumia is a neutral term. That term is speaking of strong cravings, strong desires. And it could either be a good desire or a bad desire. 
That's the way it's used in Scripture. So the context we have to pay attention to to understand how it's being used. It's obviously being used here in 1 Peter 2.11 in a very negative way. But we do find it used in other places in a positive way. Like in Luke 22.15, it's used of Jesus' desire to eat the Passover before His sufferings. It's used in Philippians 1.23 of Paul's desire to depart and be with Christ. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 2.17 of Paul's desire to see the Thessalonians. It's even used in 1 Timothy 3.1 of a man's desire to be a pastor of a church. So all of those instances are good. But its more common use is for evil. In Mark 4.19, we see it used of having desires for other things that cause the word to be choked out. You remember the parable there of the soils? The seed falls on different soils, different types of ground. And he tells us that that's speaking of the reception of the heart. And there's one place in there in Mark 4.19 where it talks about the cares of this world choking out the word of God. It's used in John 8.44 to speak of the desires of the devil. He was a liar from the beginning, right? His desire is to lie. His desire is to cheat, steal, kill, and destroy. We find it used in James 1, 14 and 15 to speak of why a person gives in to temptation. It says he is drawn away by his own epithemia, his own lust. The word's even translated in Romans 7, 7 as coveting. Peter further characterized these evil desires by telling us that these fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. So again, it goes back to the internal battle. As I said earlier, this is something that you and I have to deal with all the time. When you have that urge to listen to the flesh, to give in to the flesh, you need to recognize right then that you need to keep yourself from that. You need to abstain from that. See, fleshly lust is not just sexual sin. It's anything that the flesh produces. Fleshly desires. Sinful desires. That's all the flesh can produce. It can't produce anything righteous. But again, notice that these fleshly lusts, they wage a war. And some days you really feel that war, don't you? When your flesh is fighting you. The term wage war, it's a very strong term. It generally means to carry out a long-term military campaign. It implies not just antagonism, but a relentless, malicious aggression. That's what the flesh does. It is a relentless, malicious aggression against your soul. And really, since it takes place in the soul, it's kind of like a civil war going on inside of you. And when you join that with fleshly lust, the images of an army of lustful terrorists waging an internal search-and-destroy mission to conquer the soul of the believer. See how deadly this is? See how dangerous this is? 
And really, this is helpful even in the context or the overall context that Peter's writing about is their suffering, their persecution, because there is temptation there to flee. There's temptation there to run because you're suffering. There's temptation there to find a way out that is not the biblical way out because the flesh never looks for the biblical way out. You want to know what the biblical way is? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Notice verse 13. It says, No temptation, but the word there is parasmos, so it should be trial. No trial has overtaken you, but as is common to man, that is, it's human. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted, that's now the verb form of that noun, parazo, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with, back to the trial, the trial will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Where your flesh would tempt you to run and give up, the biblical answer is to go through it. And to remember that God is faithful. We sang about that earlier, the faithfulness of God. And to remember that the trials that you're experiencing, they're human. They're common to every man. But God's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able I know that there's sometimes when you feel like you're at the edge of it. You're at the end of the rope with what you're going through. But you've got to remember God is faithful. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. And so when you begin to say, God, I can't bear this anymore, you've just given in to the flesh. Because that's what the flesh says. The flesh says, I can't bear this. I can't handle this. God is not faithful. God will not release me from this. God is punishing me for this. Whatever this is. God will always provide a way of escape. And the way of escape is through it. Aren't you thankful for that? God will not allow you to be tried beyond what you can bear. As we go through trials, we need to remember something that Charles Spurgeon said. He said, The trials of the saint are divine pruning, by which he grows and brings forth abundant fruit. You and I need this. We need this pruning so that we can grow. We need this pruning so that we can bear fruit, and also so that we can cut off our attraction to the world. You've been listening today to Living a Godly Life from 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. This message is available on one full-length audio CD for a gift of $5, or you can download it for free from our website. To place your order today, give us a call at 904-651-3351, or visit our website at www.changedbygrace.com. Well, I'm Pastor Steve Herford, and I want to thank you for listening today, and I hope that you'll join us again next time as we study from God's Word. Hi, this is Pastor Steve Herford. I want to personally invite you to join us at 11 o'clock this morning at Eastport Baptist Church. We are located at 1322 Eastport Road 
in Jacksonville, Florida. Eastport is biblical, expository, and reformed. Look forward to meeting you this morning.